Hey, hey, homesteaders, and welcome to the TLC Mini Farm Podcast, where we discuss all things related to urban homesteading. I am your host, Tawny Fan. Today, we are doing a segment called Homestead Happy Hour, where I get a chance to just hang with a homesteading friend and chat about gardening and all the random things that we are up to on our homestead. Joining me today for happy hour is an Instagram friend from Ohio, and that's Jen from Jen's Juicy Veggies. Welcome, Jen. How are you? Hi, Tani. I'm good. How are you? I'm great. I am so appreciative that you were willing to join us on our podcast today. You're welcome, of course. So it wouldn't be happy hour um, unless we have a beverage of some sort. So what do you got going on over there? I have dark roast coffee with lots of cream and sugar. (laughs) Okay, and the beverage we have going on over here is some fresh squeezed orange juice with some club soda and a shot of fire cider. So cheers for our homesteading chat today. Yes, cheers. I should have had something a little more fun. (laughs) Hey, regardless of our beverages, we are still going to have fun today. And for those of you who are listening, Jen and I are recording with a three-hour time difference between California and Ohio, hence her coffee and my orange juice. So I do want to know, Jen, what's going on in your garden this season? Do you have any new varieties that you are going to be trying out this spring and summer? Or do you have some tried and true varieties that you always grow? Well, we are starting some new uh, fruit. We did added strawberry patch this year. And then we are trying a few new other things as well. We have sorrel this spring that we're growing. It's the first time green for me. Um, we're doing our usual, uh, of course, tomatoes, green beans, peppers, all of our um, go-to spring stuff, radishes, lettuce, spinach, of course. Um, I am skipping peas this year. Um, trying to think of what else I'm doing new. New varieties of watermelon. Um, trying corn again because it was the first time last year that I grew some successfully, but I still wasn't quite happy (laughs) with the results. Um, So I'm trying that again. Uh, Some new squash varieties, spaghetti squash. I'm trying a new pink jumbo banana squash. Yeah, Baker Baker Creek makes that one. And, you know, I don't know if there's really off the top of my head anything else I can think of new, new. So I'm picturing a very large growing space of some sort, just because I do see how much you grow based on your Instagram photos. So how much space are you working with to have um, enough space in terms of growing all these things that you've listed off or hope to grow here soon? Well, we have, I started with five raised beds and then we have an area where most of uh, like my blueberries, blackberries and raspberries are just in the ground the new strawberry patch that we just did are two uh four by 20 foot rows that we just did in the ground as well and then the larger in ground garden i believe is around 70 feet by 100 feet ish i'm not uh, we kind of just dug it we didn't really measure (laughs) 
So yeah, you're using these very large numbers that I can't even comprehend in this sense. That's a lot of space when you're talking numbers like 70 and 100. I mean, here we're working with single digit numbers where my raised beds are three feet by five feet, let's say. Yeah, my raised beds, which I love my raised beds. I would like to add more eventually. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the raised beds, I fit a lot in there. But when we added, I think, yeah, my third year, we added the larger in-ground garden because, of course, you know, uh, we have two and a half acres. So we have plenty of space to do it. Uh, eventually, maybe it'll just be the whole backyard. <laughs> we might do a pumpkin. We might add a pumpkin patch area. Uh, I was growing pumpkins at a different location, actually, up the road uh, that I really neglected last year. So I really didn't end up with uh, anything but mini pumpkins. So I might try the pumpkin patch here this year, too. But yeah, we definitely have plenty of space. It's just a matter of me being able to keep up and do it all on my own. <laughs> yeah, and I could totally see how it is a challenge when you do have a large space. So like for me, I can think, oh, I'm envious of your 2.5 acres to my very limited real estate. But yeah, it can definitely, you can only do so much as one person. But it is super fun to see all the things that you are able to grow, like these larger watermelons or pumpkins. And like for me, I have to be super strategic with some of the varieties we choose due to, you know, our space constraints and, you know, discovering things like personal size melons that are about four pounds and using a trellis to grow vertically to save on that space. So it's really cool to see these large growing spaces um, and at the same time also see what you're able to do with those spaces and grow within it. So just it's so fun just to see all the things that you're growing and enjoy those varieties through your account. Oh, thank you. Yeah, the one watermelon last year, that was the largest I ever, it was almost 27 pounds. And it sprawled, I want to say, 12 to 15 feet. It was quite massive. And I've never grown melons vertically. I know, you know, I see a lot of people do it successfully. So I probably should. And then I could even grow more. Yeah. So one of the varieties that we tried last year, which was fairly small, I'd say it was closer to one to two pounds, but we had it growing up a small A-frame. And really, we just experimented just to see if it even worked. And it totally did, just kind of even watching those little tendrils grab on and how strong they are to hold the melon. So it definitely works. So I definitely want to try um, some larger size personal watermelons again this year and just to see how that started. But I'm also feeling like I'm a a bit late to the game because I haven't even started my watermelon seeds yet and we're approaching May here but we do have a long growing season here in 10b so I anticipate I should probably get on it and it should be okay. Yeah I think you have time for sure. Yeah. I We don't start ours until mid-May usually because it doesn't necessarily heat up here enough for melons until like the first week of June. I usually plant those out so yeah, and soil temperature is a, a huge factor for melons in terms of starting them off successfully. Now, speaking of uh, very different growing seasons, you and I are uh, in different zones. You're in 6A and I'm in 10B. And so it's just always fun to 
see everybody else's process of getting their season going uh, based on where they live. And, you know, here with 10B, we're kind of like, we can garden year round. And obviously in other places where you've got um, some inches of snow here and there, uh, your season is a little bit different. And so your process is different. And I do notice like for you, you do start your seeds um, indoors fairly early uh, to begin your season, right? Yes, yes. I usually start right after the new year, um, something, uh, whether it be herbs, lettuce, but usually I start peppers late January, which a lot of people think is a little too early, but I like to have nice, large plants by the time it's transplant time. Some of them even start to have flowers and, you know, or fruit or peppers growing on them by the time I put them out. I pinch flower buds off usually until about May. And then I start letting them just do their thing because they're plenty big enough. But yeah, and then I get usually two sets of peppers that way, you know, I'll harvest some late June, early July, and then I have another set by October, which is usually mid October comes our frost. So yes, our, for our frost date usually is mid-May. So Mother's Day weekend usually is my weekend that I plant out, but everything starts in January. Now, tomatoes, I don't start until March. Uh, sunflowers, stuff like that, I'm just starting now because they grow pretty quick, but I like to start those indoors too. Um, what else do I start? Well, my slow growing flowers, petunias, snapdragons, all that kind of stuff. I start in usually February, but yeah, it helps me uh, deal with our long winters and snow and all that and being stuck in the house. So that's definitely, uh, it's, but it's all in my basement. I don't have a greenhouse yet. So I do everything in the basement. I started out, of course, with just one grow light. Now I have five and I added a shelving unit last winter when I started um, doing the microgreens indoors as well. So yeah, it's just kind of eventually probably the entire basement's going to be shelves and lights. And <laughs> Hey, that sounds like a great setup. Just take over the whole basement. But it's cool because it really allows you to get growing um, early on to kick off your season while it's still cold outside and it really gives you a chance to start thinking and, and dreaming about the season ahead and to really be prepared once the uh, springtime arrives. Yes and my goal has always been to have my flowers blooming or starting to bloom you know by May. That's always just been my goal because you know you go if you go by flowers at the local nurseries and stuff they're already flowering you know you're not buying just greenery and oh what's this going to look like no you know you're buying them they're already flowering so I'm like I wonder when they start so I did some research seeing how early a lot of these places actually start their stuff indoors and yeah I mean even marigolds and stuff you got to start them usually by February for them to start blooming indoors in April or May but the whole point is, you know, especially with marigolds, I'm using them to deter pests. So they have to be blooming by the time I want them, you know, to go outside and work their magic. And I'd say for those who have never tried growing their own plants from seeds, just to know that it does take a uh, really long time to go from seed to germination to getting a ro robust plant like you would see at the garden center. Um, and so there is some planning involved in all that. And on top of it, if you are looking at the seed packet, oftentimes what it says on the seed packet 
um, in terms of how long it would take to grow and harvest, you can kind of probably add some time, almost double, because I have always found it takes so much longer than what the packet actually says. I completely agree with you on that. I don't go by the seed pack a lot because of that, especially even with spacing a lot of times. It tells you, you know, either too close or too far apart together. I swear every time. So I've just kind of learned, you know, as I go, and yeah, but I, I agree with that. It does take a long time. And I mean, it's not the same as it sometimes if you direct sow something in that, you know, it's warmer out and whatnot, it is going to grow faster outdoors than it is going to grow when it's in a four inch pot. But yeah, so timing wise, there definitely is a difference between starting inside and then also starting outside doing direct sowing. But if you want to grow from seed, though, just know it's going to take a good eight to 12 weeks for certain plants to grow strong, healthy, and then to have time to harden off before you can go ahead and transplant uh, them in your garden. Um, and some things just, they take longer than others. And Jen, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, some things that you might want to start early on would be peppers, uh, probably followed by eggplants, and then maybe after that tomatoes, because those do take a while. So you want to get those going first. There's some other things then that don't take as long. They're fairly quick, like melons, cucumbers, certain flowers that Jen mentioned, things like maybe even peas and corn. But really, these are just like you kind of learn it over time and you figure out uh, what varieties to start when. And it's just a process of staging um, and having the space and the time for everything. Yes, I've definitely worked into my groove with that the last three years, I would say. Uh, and Instagram has helped me with that only because I use it as a diary. You know, it's a reminder. Oh, a year ago today, I was starting this or that. I better if I hadn't started it yet, I better get moving. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I totally do the same thing too because um, it serves as a great diary or journal. It's definitely documenting things that we're doing and so we can scroll back and see what we were doing in previous years. Now, I was really just kind of curious in the sense that we talked about your large growing space, which means that you're able to produce quite a bit and harvest quite a bit. And so I'm curious to know, do you use most of it for your own personal home use? Are you making things out of the things that you harvest? Um, do you sell products like your veggies or anything that you make? So what do you do with all of your stuff? Well, I, for the first time last year, did sell some stuff. I had a little stand up the road. Uh, I think I did it five or six times, uh, mainly just tomatoes, cucumbers, um, and some herbs. But otherwise, I do give a lot away to family and friends. And then I do, last year I donated for the first time, I found a local Salvation Army. So I took, um, I think three different times I went and took probably about 30 pounds of tomatoes total. And I'm actually going to donate some plants. They have a garden there, which I didn't know till I went to drop all the stuff off and they had their own garden. So that was pretty cool. And I told them that I would donate plants this year to their garden. But otherwise, I, um, I do sell my microgreens and edible flowers and herbs. I was pre-pandemic selling to some restaurants, which I'm hoping to get back into doing soon. Um, but anybody local, I mean, if a family, of course, you know, wanted fresh microgreens, they're welcome to purchase them from me as well. Um, I have a couple 
uh, ladies that have charcuterie board businesses that have bought edible flowers from me. Um, trying to think of if there's any, uh, my soaps, I've sold, uh, I make loofah soaps with my loofahs that I grow. So I've sold those as well um, on, on my website, but yeah, I've done quite a bit of different things with my stuff, but I really enjoy giving it away. And I mean, I do preserve some things. I'll make pickles and I'll do salsas and I make tomato sauce and I keep all of my winter squash because those last for so long that we end up eating them for the holidays and whatnot. Um, and dehydrating all my, all my herbs and all that stuff. I have jars and jars of that kind of stuff that don't go bad, but I like to give that stuff away as well. I love, love, love that you brought up that we can donate some of our extra garden goodies to, uh, you know, either the Salvation Army, which you mentioned, or possibly our local food banks. Um, You know, oftentimes I kind of feel like when we think about donating to our our local food banks in the community, we often think of dry goods or canned goods, but really fresh food is, it's going to be the most nutritious. And so I would think maybe a lot of our local food banks would love to be able to supplement what they are providing to the community in terms of donations. So, you know, that makes me think about the extra fruit that we may have on our fruit trees or the extras that come from our garden would be good options. And I really love that you shared that. And although I personally, I'm not able to grow a ton, a ton of extras, it is something that I do hope to be able to do from time to time in the near future um, in terms of reaching out and seeing if they um, are willing and wanting uh, the donation of fresh goodies. Yes, it was actually sort of difficult to find a pantry that would take perishable food. Mm-hmm. So that which, you know, kind of was a shock to me because I mean, I understand that, you know, tomatoes only have X amount of the shelf life, but yeah, that they don't have, it's not the same. They don't have access to fresh food as much people that are relying on these food banks. So I did have to do my research. I probably called 10 places that denied me before I found the Salvation Army. And they actually would only take my donations on Mondays and Fridays because that's when they actually send stuff out. Yeah, it definitely makes sense just in the sense of it being perishable items. Because again, when we think about like donating, we think of things like pasta or dried beans or canned soup. So um, the items that are perishable uh, need to go out in a timely manner, right? But I mean, really just how persistent you are um, with trying to find a place that would accept your donations of these uh, fresh fruits and veggies, I mean, I'm sure those families that received uh, these items were so appreciative. And I I love the idea and I love that you shared it today because really for me, I definitely want to uh, be able to uh, do the same. Yeah, it was a great feeling too to do, you know, thinking like a lot of the stuff I sent was unique. You know, I did like my berries, crazy cherry tomatoes and my uh, black cherry tomatoes, the blueberry cherries and stuff that people probably when they received, they were like, what is this? <laughs> yeah, it's so true. Cause you know, if you don't grow your own food or flip through seed catalogs, you would just think that every tomato is round and red, right? Like what you see at the grocery store, that's what that veggie or fruit looks like. So I'd say for us, because we do grow our own things, we grow some pretty cool stuff. That's for sure. 
Yeah, I, I still blow everybody's minds. I mean, I didn't know about loofahs either, but you know, the first thing everybody says, like, uh, I thought those came from the ocean. I'm like, yeah, I did too until I started growing them. So I hear the same thing too. Isn't that funny? People are like, wait, that's a plant? Yeah, and I never, I never knew peanuts grew underground. So I mean, I've learned a lot too, and I stuff I would have never learned unless, honestly, I had joined Instagram. I feel like I really learned the most from being on there and seeing what everybody else grew. I didn't know about heirloom tomatoes and all these varieties of things, you know, that existed. But I've learned a lot. Well, I'm always saying it's a journey, and we continue to learn every day. Now, speaking of learning, there is something I want to learn a little bit more about from you, and it's about um, having a beehive. And as much as I think it would be really cool to have a beehive, I'm also feeling a bit of apprehension about it, just the idea of having a hive full of bees. Um, So you've had a hive before, or you're planning to get one soon. Share a little bit about your beehive adventure. Yes, we had bees two summers ago. Our friend has been keeping bees for about 12 years. He actually went to school and he's quite knowledgeable. So he had a a hive split in the spring and he brought it over to our place and they did really well. Uh, We, our first harvest, actually, we harvested two gallons of honey and that was leaving them half, you know, for winter for themselves to live off of. But unfortunately, they disappeared that winter. We had a lot of fluctuations in temperatures. Um, They definitely didn't die. We aren't still really sure what happened. It's a constant learning deal, you know, with when it comes to the bees, because I've read a lot and all that, but I think that no matter how long you have them, you're going to constantly be learning something new about them. They're very fascinating, but our new bees will be arriving sometime this month. We're just waiting on the call. So we did purchase a new bee box, which is insulated and much nicer than our other one. So they should survive our Ohio brutal winters, no problem with this one. But um, otherwise, I didn't do too much of handling the bees. I did get pretty close up. I was a little nervous too. (laughs) I'd only been stung a couple times in my life. It wasn't really so much being stung. I guess I was thinking more like them swarming my entire body kind of thing. Like, oh, you know, but they're actually, uh, if you smoke them, that kind of makes them all go into the hive to protect each other kind of thing. They think that there's a fire. I I didn't get stung, but the boyfriend got stung a few times. He had some allergic reactions. So now that I talked him into getting a new set of bees, I am going to be the sole bee caretaker. So when you say caretaker, it makes me wonder how much maintenance does it require to keep a bee box? So like how much hands-on do you need to do with this box? Or do you just leave it alone and then you get to harvest some honey a few months later? Okay, well, our first hive that we received, we did it a little different because we didn't purchase them. So, you know, they were already in the bo- our box. Our friend took our box, put them in our box, and then brought them over here. Uh, we had to do every morning a sugar water concoction for them. They don't leave and go too far when they are in a new location. They'll 
fly out of the box, fly right back. And that's just them trying to learn where they are kind of deal, I guess, in simple terms. So, but yeah, you feed them a sugar water concoction because they don't have any honey in their hive to survive off of yet, you know? So for a couple, I want to say it was a couple of weeks, we had to do that. So it was a daily thing, the, the sugar water thing. And then after that, we really just checked on them. Well, our friend came over every time we did it. So he would come and help us. Uh, we checked on them probably three, four times the entire summer, just opened up the box, looked to see what was going on kind of deal. Um, otherwise, it was pretty low maintenance. Now, our first box wasn't insulated. So we did have to insulate the box for winter. And all we really did was wrap it in a black tarp paper because that you know the black attracts the heat and I see some people stack like hay bales around we had ours in a pretty good location so it was uh surrounded by trees in the back part of our property so it wasn't in an area with like you know direct crazy winds that would be blowing at it or anything so again they didn't die so it wasn't really the weather it's more you have to worry about moisture getting into the box in the winter time that's going to kill them kind of thing so we did spend quite a bit more money on this new box that's insulated, but it's like a guaranteed, you know, that it's going to keep them alive. But we really think that they swarmed and left that the hive got too large the first time because there's maybe 50 dead bees at the bottom. If something had gotten in the hive mites or something that would have, you know, messed the entire hive up or killed them, there would have been thousands of dead bees. So yeah. that was our sign that we know they didn't die. So like I said, lots of learning to do. So I'll be doing lots of reading. And then of course our friend, luckily he lives super close by. So he's willing to come over and help whenever we have any questions. So very cool. So I've learned two things already about keeping bees and that's the use of the smoke and the sugar water concoction. Um, so I got to say this whole beekeeping thing is just really intriguing. And I still am wondering this one thing is, is the placement of the bee box. Do you put it near your garden with the hopes of increasing pollination and yield? Or do you put it further away from your garden? So like, what's the ideal placement for a bee box? I, they honestly, I don't remember, but I want to say that they will travel two to five miles it really doesn't matter so much the location, but they're pretty, pretty close by They're back. We're actually kind of by my compost pile, but they're, I would say 500 feet away from the garden. So they're pretty close. Uh, but yeah, they travel really far and we have so many farms in the area that keep bees that we always have a ton of bees anyhow, which I'm sure, you know, is from all these local farms that have their bees, but it's yeah. when I learned, when I learned, it might only be two miles, you know, don't quote me, of course, but it, either way, miles are miles. For me, I was like, I couldn't believe that they fly that far away and then find their way back to the hive. I mean, it's super interesting the things that these little creatures can do. I'll tell you that because even like the winter time when they come out above 50 degrees, they are coming out to use the bathroom. They're pulling out the dead, any dead bees that are in the hive, they're cleaning the hive. I mean, they're just, it's, it's amazing. They really are fascinating little creatures and what they do uh, for the ecosystem in terms of their positive impact is just amazing. And, you know, this is probably one of the reasons why many of us as gardeners 
have pollinator gardens. Um, we want to attract them. We're trying to provide some resources for them in our yard or garden just because we are concerned um, with the decline of the overall bee population. Now for me, I'm not quite where you're at yet where I'm feeling comfortable with having a beehive or having a beehive with the intention of collecting honey. Although the idea of harvesting two gallons of honey sounds amazing but the little things that I can do right now where I feel comfortable with is uh, just having like a small bee hotel available in my yard somewhere and so we have it where we've bought it um, drilled it up against the wall or we have it where it's hanging on a shepherd's hook um, I've seen some people make their own as well uh, using things that they have in their yard or garden in creating these small nooks and crannies and some people even buy supplies for making it um i believe i've seen like paper straws and whatnot that can be arranged um together to create some type of small bee hotel all right i i thought about getting a bee hotel myself but i have heard mixed things about introducing or trying to bring in uh native these species when I have honeybees as well. So I'm just going to do some more research before, of course, I add one of those, but they're so cute. I want to. <laughs> oh yeah. They're super, super adorable. Yeah. But I've had a lot of people ask if I have one because they've said that they've had mold issues in theirs. Is that something you've experienced yourself? You know, we haven't had any issues with mold here, but it may be because there's a difference with either the temperature or humidity um, since usually those two combined together can create mold issues. Yeah, being uh, maybe zone 10B in coastal, I'm not sure if that has anything to do with it. That could be, it could, yeah, I'm not sure where the people that have asked me that question lived, but you know, we're not too yeah. humid in this area either, but well, I'm also thinking that we replaced our bee hotel after one season, um, thinking that I didn't really want to have any potential issues of maybe parasites or bacteria building up. So we did swap it out after a season. So um, I'm not sure if that's something that's recommended, but that's what we did. And hence why, you know, for us, we did not see any mold issues with our bee hotel. Yeah, like anything, I would think, you know, it needs some sort of maintenance. Yeah, so in terms of maintenance for us, just swapping out would be the easiest. Um, but, you know, for those who can be resourceful and construct their own, like I had mentioned earlier around like just finding sticks and twigs and making nooks and crannies and things like that, um, you can definitely do that. But for us, we've been able to find these pre-made bee hotels that are relatively inexpensive and maybe in the range of between like 12 to 18 dollars for a small box and you know they've been working i check up on them and once in a while i do find that one of the little holes has been plugged up with either mud or some cut up leaves so it's super fun to find even if it's working for just one or two of those little holes but we know that the bees are taking advantage of our small little bee hotel out there Oh yeah, of course. I mean, I couldn't believe seeing when we did the first honey harvest. I mean, even our friend had told us like he could not believe that our bees produced that much honey, but I mean, the, the mass amounts of bees just coming in and out of that thing nonstop was just, I, it's just unbelievable to see that they, they can do what they do. That's for sure. 
a bee hotel would be fun. I'll probably add one maybe closer to the house or something eventually. Oh, yeah. They're just so cute. It really just adds a little whimsical flair to our yard. But it also serves a purpose, so it's two great reasons to have a bee hotel. And, you know, as gardeners, again, we're just trying to be very strategic in attracting beneficial insects to our yard, whether it's for pollination or whether it's for organic pest control. Yes, I saw before that you did the uh, praying mantis and ladybugs, and I've never tried that before. Oh, yeah, yeah. So once a year, um, we have a local nursery here that does an event called the Ladybug Day Giveaway. So that's when I usually pick up my little package of ladybugs and um, release them in the garden. And the little packet is really cute and it tells you what time of day would be best to release them and where to release them. So I have done that. Um, I've also tried... um, buying the praying mantis egg sacs and around here we can just go to the the nursery and pick up it's like a little cup that has two egg sacs in there and um, so all you have to do is just uh, keep a, a close watch on it and as soon as they hatch then you just take the cup and place it in the garden to allow the um baby uh mantises or mantisi i'm not sure what the plural version is but yeah you just let them uh start walking and roaming and exploring the garden but it it really is a a fascinating um process because this egg sac uh in these cups will hold like maybe 50 to 100 um babies in there and uh, so it's really fun because they're teeny tiny Um, but the cool thing is is i think that at this point having released them a few years ago we continue to find uh, mantises in our uh, garden year after year season after season so i think they're growing into their adulthood and um having um their own egg sacs somewhere out there and so we pretty much have an established population i did happen to find a praying mantis egg sac on our screen door that goes from our bedroom out to the garden and when i first saw it i was kind of like what the heck is that and after closer inspection i realized what it was and i was like oh my gosh that's so cool and uh, just pretty much left it alone but yeah just having them in the garden and hoping that they're out there doing their mantis activities which is munching on some of our um bugs and pests out there it's uh it's a good thing to have them out there yeah i would love to try the praying mantis the babies look super cute I, yeah. I don't know what it is about them I mean they kind of scare me because they can fly and I don't know what it is about flying insects but I I still think they're cute funny you say that because um yeah I think they're cute too and again very fascinating they do look kind of strange but I will say uh like my husband he hates them it's I don't know what had happened in his younger years in terms of um, what's going on with the prey mantis, but when he sees them, he's just like, mm, not looking at it, not touching it, not moving. Um, so yeah, it's pretty funny. I mean, they can, they're, they're very alien-like. 
And I have seen crazy videos of them killing hummingbirds. So that is the only thing I fear with those things. I mean, of <laughs> course, they have to be quite large to kill a hummingbird. But still, it's like, oh my gosh, they can do that? <laughs> I'm going to have to try that one of these years too. There's like all this stuff I want to do all the time that I'm like, I can only add so many things to the list per year. So you have a bucket list like I do. Yeah, last year was the cattle panel trellis thing I did the loofahs on. I wanted like an arch trellis to walk under. So I got that. And I guess this year I really didn't want per se the strawberry patch, but that's our new thing. You know, 75 plants, I think, once those established and set out their runners and do their thing, which I don't know a lot about berries either, but you know, I'll be learning, I guess. We'll we'll see how many strawberries we end up with. Yeah, and with social media, we're able to see what others are doing and growing, and it's great, but at the same time, it just keeps adding to my bucket list, and I feel like it just is growing exponentially because I'm like, I want to do that. I want to grow that. Yeah, that's easy to have happen. (laughs) So, Jen, it's been so fun chatting with you during Homestead Happy Hour. Where can people find you if they want to connect with you or follow along with your gardening and homesteading journey? I have, of course, my Instagram account, Jen's Juicy Veggies. I'm also on TikTok, which was my teenage daughter's influence recently that I uh, started doing TikToks, but I'm on there as well under Jen's Juicy Veggies. And then I do have my website also which is www.jensjuicyveggies.com. And I do put stuff on that, uh, like my loofah soaps and my salves and certain things that I make. But then I also uh, will sell just locally to, to the restaurants and anybody, of course, that would like to buy, but my herbs and my edible flowers and microgreens. Thank you so much, Jen, for joining us on today's podcast. For those of you listening, definitely give Jen a follow. She regularly posts on Instagram where I've been following her for about four years now and she's got great homesteading content. Check out her website as well as if you are in the Cleveland, Ohio area and are in need of edible flowers or microgreens, give her a holler. I will also be sure to add links to the show notes for this episode on how you can connect with Jen. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. You can follow us on Instagram at TLC Mini Farm or visit our website at TLCMiniFarm.com. Until next time, happy homesteading, everyone.